Will you pray with me, please? Good and gracious God and Father, we thank you for this Easter Sunday morning, a time to reflect, a time to receive your inspiration, and Lord, also a time to celebrate. Lord, we ask that you would be with us and bless us during this time in the message as we receive your word of promise that's made possible to us through the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, may we be open to it. May we receive it with faith. May we believe it and trust in it for our lives, for our families, and for our future. All this we ask in the name of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, Amen. The title of the message this morning is A Garden Variety Victory. A Garden Variety Victory. Now, when something is described as garden variety, it can be kind of plain. Garden variety means commonplace, ordinary, normal. Nothing special or significant about this whatsoever. And I can think of a lot of garden variety victories that have happened over the course of my life. But as I think about garden variety victories, the, the thing that stands out most to me are the youth sports varieties. Let me describe. This picture is a picture of me coaching my boys, Riley, Aiden, and Ethan. And every year as I coached them in sports, before middle school athletics took over, um, I coached them like the second grade, third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, and then seventh grade, the school teams take over um, where we were living. But as I coached them when they were younger, we would always go to this one tournament. And the tournament was in the great metropolis of Litchfield, Michigan. Two hours away from here, 1,300 people population, one-day tournament. It was $100, the price was right, the distance away from our home in Battle Creek was right, and the tournament was just right for us. It would be like um, a confidence-boosting tournament over the holidays in Division I uh, college men's basketball, if, if you will. And this tournament, uh, four teams, two games, and if you won two games, you were the champion. If you were the champion, you got a trophy. And the trophy said champion of that age level in Litchfield, Michigan, at that gym on that particular Saturday. Because they held, held more than one tournament during the season. And so you have to wonder, even though it was special for us, and even though I coached like it was the NCAA Final Four, <laughs> was it really that significant? It was special for me, it was special for my boys, special for our team, but in the grand scheme of things, what kind of victory was it? We also think about personal victories, perhaps. Personal victories that you have for yourself. It's a fitness goal, a weight loss goal, a health goal. Maybe it's overcoming an obstacle that's in your life. Restoring relationship, perhaps, or maybe a new career venture. Maybe you just announced that you're running for public office. All kinds of special goals that we have. And these are meaningful goals. And these are special goals. And I pray that God has given you victory personally with these kinds of ventures. But then the question comes to my mind, boy, if I've overcome this obstacle, when will the next obstacle come? If I've gained this particular point in my life, and, I've, and if I have this thing, then when, when is the next thing going to, to come my way? When is the next shoe going to drop? And maybe I'll have another obstacle to overcome. Perhaps even more significant than a personal victory, though, is this kind of victory, a geopolitical victory. And boy, have we been scanning the news on this particular topic. 
Just when we think things are getting better, it seems things get worse and Russia does something else to destroy property, to damage the infrastructure, to take innocent life. And the thing that we want to do as the United States of America, we really can't do because we want to solve this once and for all and we think that we could, but that might also come with consequences. And sometimes war is like that. And it's been like that for decades, whether it's the war on terror, we think back even to Vietnam, we think the thing that we ought to have done, the thing we should have done is the thing that we didn't do. And even now, the thing that we want to do is the thing that we're advised not to do. It can be very frustrating to know what a victory is like, how long this conflict will last, when will it come to a conclusion. So whether victories that you encounter lack significance have a definitive timeline in mind, or maybe aren't the kind of victory you're hoping for. When it comes to Jesus, and when it comes to this week of his passion, and on this particular day, what kind of victory is it that we're looking for? Because for the folks at Jesus' time, the cross didn't seem like a victory. It seemed like a loss. Their leader, their teacher, their friend, their coach, their, their Lord that they'd been following for the better part of three years was being put to death on a cross like a common criminal outside the city gates of Jerusalem. It didn't seem right. It certainly wasn't fair or just. And it didn't feel like a victory. In fact, most of the disciples had deserted Jesus at this time. There were a few women who were followers, certainly Jesus' mother. And then John, the disciple Jesus loved, was also at the foot of the cross somehow. But as they're looking at Jesus, they're not thinking, wow, I can't wait because this is going to be the start of a new beginning. It's going to be a fresh start for us all. They're looking at Jesus and they're thinking, this is it. This is the end. This is the last time we will see him. What kind of victory is that? Certainly not the one we were expecting. Certainly not the one we were hoping for. We were hoping for something else. We were hoping for something significant, something that would last, something that would be universal in impact, that would change our lives here and now, but also for eternity. And it doesn't look like the cross. And it really didn't look like the tomb, at least at first. They brought Jesus' body down. They laid him in this particular tomb. And yes, it was perhaps a different kind of tomb, a special tomb. It was a tomb in which no one else had been laid. But it was still a tomb. Jesus was still dead. I love scripture and I love the word of God because it's the word of God that instructs us and informs us of what to look for when all hope is lost, of, of what to remember when it seems like things are just ordinary, commonplace, or regular. And so as we look to the scriptures with regard to the death and resurrection of Jesus, we look to the gospel, certainly Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and in this particular case, we look to John. Yes, the disciple whom Jesus loved, and John includes this interesting detail at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. I've read this passage perhaps hundreds of times, but a lot. 
to be sure. But so interesting, the detail that John delivers. And sometimes the gospel writers are giving you special detail because they want you to know that they were there, that they actually saw these things. And that gives us confidence in the word of God. These eyewitness accounts and testimonies of Jesus' life and ministry. And here, it's in this detail that we see that nearby the cross where Jesus was crucified was a, was a garden. And in this garden was a tomb. Now, I don't think of the tomb of Jesus Christ as being in the midst of a garden. And I kind of wonder what garden it was. Was it an olive tree garden? Was it a flower garden? Was it, were there other plants or vegetables there? What kind of garden was this? Was it beautiful and lush? Was it barren and dusty? I'm not exactly sure. But what I am sure of is this, that scripture interprets scripture. And yes, there are eyewitness accounts and details that give us courage and confidence when we look to God's word, but there's also details that help our minds make connections. Because when I think of a garden, with regard to scripture, I think of that first garden. I think of the Garden of Eden. And I think of Adam and Eve in that garden being placed there by God to work it, to tend it, to be good stewards of it. I think of that garden providing all that Adam and Eve would need for their life together as husband and wife, as they maybe perhaps look to start a family. I think of God providing all of that blessing for them just with one condition that this particular tree of knowledge of good and evil you ought not touch. And when God gives plentiful blessing with one condition, you'd think to yourself, how easy to have a victory. This is, this is not difficult. There's only one tree you can't eat from, you can have the rest. And then you enter serpent. You enter that ancient serpent, the devil, who twists and distorts God's word, brings doubt into the equation, and tempts Adam and Eve with the one thing, that they couldn't have with the one thing they couldn't be. They weren't supposed to have that fruit of the tree. They weren't supposed to be God. They were supposed to have a relationship with God. And then that desire to become God unto themselves, to make their own rules and conditions, to not be satisfied or content with God had given them, sin is introduced into the world. And because of sin, that separation between God and humanity and because of separation, ultimately, the consequence would be death. Sin, separation, and death all came into that scene with humanity's fall in the Garden of Eden, that first garden. It was not a garden variety victory whatsoever. It was not even a garden variety defeat. It was the worst defeat you could possibly imagine for Adam and Eve and for us as descendants of Adam and Eve. But God is a God of grace. God is a God of mercy. God is a God of second chances. And as soon as Adam and Eve fell into that sin and fell prey to the temptation of the devil, God promised them a savior, a person who could save them from themselves, a person who could forgive their sins, a person who could eliminate that separation that had to exist between God and humanity because of sin and a person who could overcome death. So when you tell me that there is a cross on which Jesus was crucified and in that area of the cross was a garden 
And in that garden was a tomb. And that's where Jesus would come to life again. I see a connection between Genesis chapter 3 and the Gospels of Jesus Christ. And I see God doing what he does best and taking what was and making it what will be. Taking the mess that we've made of our lives and making it new. I see God taking sin and separation and death and nailing it to a tree and eliminating that separation, swallowing up that sin and declaring victory over death once and for all. And I see God setting his people free through the life, death, and yes, the resurrection of Jesus Christ that apparently also happened in a garden. From one garden to another. And friends, make no mistake, this is no garden variety victory. Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the famous chapter on resurrection. If you've never read it, consider reading it today or later this week. Where, O death, is your sting? Where, O grave, is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the power of the sin is the law. And friends, the law cannot save. The law is what Jesus is satisfying on the cross. He's paying the punishment excuse me, the penalty that we deserve because of our sin, taking that punishment for sin upon himself. And then he's doing something different. On Easter Sunday morning, on this day in history, he's coming back to life. Why? To show that he is who he said he was. And to demonstrate for us his power over sin, death, and Satan forever, once and for all. This is no garden variety victory. Thanks be to God that he has given us the victory in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, friends, sometimes I feel like a garden variety kind of person when I consider myself, when I think about who I am and what I've accomplished. Sometimes I think of myself as a, a garden variety pastor, not that spectacular, not that hip, no longer young anymore. Sometimes I think maybe we're just garden variety people. Maybe that... Um, yeah, we're okay, all right, but what's special about us? But friends, that's not how God views me, and that is not how God views you. God does not view you as ordinary, commonplace, or usual. God views you as extraordinary. In fact, he said that you are God's masterpiece. You're the result of his craftsmanship. You are God's you are God's people who've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. He has created in you a new heart. And, and God says that you are his handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Friends, this is not a garden variety victory. We are not a garden variety people. And why? Because we don't have a garden variety God. This is the only God, the only God who came down from heaven, became like one of us yet without sin in order to be our savior. Every other worldview, every other system, it's what we have to do or earn or be in order to attain the blessings of God in heaven. Not so with our God. He is the one who loved you so much that he couldn't imagine a heaven without you. And so he came down from heaven, became like one of us in order to eliminate that sin. Swallow up that separation and proclaim victory over death. Friends, as those who are forgiven and free, we receive this victory today. And by the power and promise of the Holy Spirit, we live as people who have the victory. 
Friends, do you have the victory in Christ? Do you receive it today? Alleluia and amen. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia.